LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. Hey, everybody. Before we jump into Ask Me Anything for today, I want to tell you about a company named Belay. You know, no matter how many people that you have on staff at your church, whether there's a few or a lot, there's only so much that you can accomplish in a day, right? Your church exists to serve your community. So the mission of your church and its staff is to reach as many people as you can. That's why productivity is not just a, a business practice. It's essential. It's essential in, in being the best steward of your time that you can be and to use the most of your church's resources in being successful in the things God has called you to. Thankfully, our friends at Belay know this really well. Belay, an innovative staffing solution with over 10 years of experience serving churches, has successfully matched thousands of organizations with part-time virtual assistants, bookkeepers, and social media strategists. You, you thought, you know, I, I need somebody, but just not, not, not for the whole time. Well, they're your partner for this. That's why they're offering our listeners a free download of their resource, Church Leaders, Essential Strategies to Unleash Productivity. Let Belay help your church live its mission in your community by helping you juggle less and accomplish more. Just go to Belay, that's B-E-L-A-Y, solutions.com slash Lifeway for your free download. And now I hope you enjoy Ask Me Anything. Hey everybody, welcome to Ask Me Anything. We are in the middle of a great series of episodes. Uh, It's a conversation between uh, author Rebecca McLaughlin and Pastor JD. Um, Rebecca is the author of a few books that we've mentioned on the last few podcasts, but if you missed those, she's written Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. She also wrote 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity, and she just released a new book, The Secular Creed, Engaging Five contemporary claims. Um, She's an excellent author, excellent teacher, and and this conversation has just been extremely helpful. So like we've said before, this was originally recorded as a long-form conversation, and we've just split it up into four question and answer segments. So today, Pastor JD has some really tough questions for Rebecca, who's going to spend a few minutes answering, how can evangelical churches be safe places for people who are same-sex attracted? How do we use this racially polarized moment as an opportunity for the gospel? And lastly, what does a faithful Christian witness look like in a politically polarized time? Man, man, those are tough questions. So this is going to be really, really good. So listen to this. There's a lot to cover. Let's hop in right now. Rebecca, let me ask this, because you're so clear about what God's plan is for sexuality. Mm. He created male and female, and sex is supposed to happen within the marriage covenant between a man and a woman. I, and I, I've read few things that were as clear as that, yet here you are just honest about that's something that I have struggled with and, and even struggled with in the church. So mm. let, me, let me ask this question. How can evangelical churches be safe places mm. for people that find themselves where you were mm. those years ago? Mm. I think it's really easy for us as Christians to talk about the LGBT community out there and the church here as if these are completely separate communities. When the reality is, if we if we look at the statistics around the patterns of same-sex attraction, it seems like about 14% of women and about 7% of men experience some significant degree of same-sex attraction. 
Now, interestingly, only 2% two, uh, 2 of men and 1% of women are exclusively attracted to those of their same sex. So there's the category of folks like me, women who are attracted to other women, but not to the extent that they, they couldn't be happily married to a man, is actually the largest group of LGBT people by far. And, and we need to recognize that in our churches, that means that a significant number of the folks who show up on a Sunday or, or in your small group or in your youth group or community, this will be part of their experience. And so I, rather than always talking as if this is kind of an issue out there, we need to normalize the fact this is probably an issue for many of my brothers and sisters in here. And that I as an individual and we as a group need to be a place where, where folks feel comfortable sharing their struggles. Um, I, I think in, in many churches, it's easier to confess a pornography addiction than same-sex attraction. Now, don't get me wrong, I think it's really important that people are able to talk about their pornography addiction and get help from their brothers and sisters in Christ. But I think we've got things really messed up if we've sort of allowed that to be a conversation but we actually haven't created space for people who are struggling with same-sex attraction. Yeah, I know that um, I heard a guy say one time that whenever we're dealing with somebody in the church that is experiencing same-sex attraction and because of the stigma that is given to that sin above all the others, mm. there's probably more that are quietly struggling with that than right. they would admit. As he says, what you're first dealing with usually is a deep question of unanswered prayer. Mm. God, why haven't you changed me? I've asked mm. you to change me. Mm. And there's that question of, of how does God feel about me? How, why... Why is he not answering my prayer? And then added to that the shame of not being able to talk about that struggle. Yeah. yeah. What do you say specifically to, to people? Because this is we hear this a lot that, well, you are asking me to deny myself mm -hmm. when, you know, you, like God made me and I've got to love me as me the way that yeah. that I am. How do yeah. you respond to yeah. that? I would want to say yes. Jesus says that anyone who wants to follow him must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. I think the call on same-sex attracted Christians is to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Jesus. I think that's actually also the call on heterosexual Christians. And if we've created church culture as a place where only same-sex attracted folk are making real sacrifices to follow Jesus, we've got some major problems on our hands, right? This is, being a Christian should be an experience of, of denying yourself, but not in a way that ultimately means you lose out. It's almost like you're saying that we've, in general, so dumbed down the call to repentance. Yeah. It's like clean up a few habits when it really is, for any of us, heterosexual, homosexual, or anywhere on that spectrum, you got to deny yourself and lay it all down. Yeah. And you lay it down because Jesus has given you something better. And by that, I don't mean, I think sometimes we can have a, almost a prosperity gospel way of thinking where, for example, we might bring up our kids and say, you know, if you're a really good girl or boy and like don't mess around sexually, then one day God's going to provide you with this perfect spouse and you have this like amazing, you know, sexually romantically fulfilled life for the rest of, you know, for the rest of your, your days. Uh, that's not a promise that we're given in the scriptures. The promise that we are given in the scriptures is that anything we give up for Jesus, we will get the reward of Jesus. And that will be so much better than the thing that we could have had. And we get, we get tangible glimpses of how, what it means to be close to Jesus in his body today. I, I love the biblical metaphor of the church as Jesus's body, because it means that when I feel the like physical embrace of a sister in Christ, if I'm going through a 
a season of suffering in my life. That's like in a tangible way, that's the arms of Jesus around me. And if we are providing for and helping each other and listening to each other and caring for each other in the church, we're experiencing Jesus. And, and that's one of the things that I think all, all of us need, but I think especially those who are turning away from their own sexual and romantic fulfillment to follow Jesus. I, I think those folks in particular need to feel the arms of Jesus around them in the local church. We've talked a lot about race and racism. Well, they're really this whole year in the United States. Mm. I think it's revealed some very difficult things in the culture and in the church. How do you see this moment as an opportunity for the gospel? Mm. And what is the gospel? What hope does it give us in a racially polarized time like we often find ourselves in? Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that I feel most hopeful about in America right now is the the vibrant, joyful, serious faith of our black brothers and sisters. Often the, the folks that we hear from in the public square, the, the, the acceptable face of black Christianity for many secular progressive folk is the, the progressive black Christian. Um, the, the, the folks who would affirm same-sex sexual relationships um, and, and may, may hold less tightly to, to the, the political and cultural left. Right. But in fact, if you look at the majority of black Christians in America today, if you look at the majority of, of black churches, you'll find that they're actually holding on to the scriptures just as tightly as, as you or I are. And I think there's, there's a beauty and a, and a joy and a hopefulness in that. And I think um, black Americans who are serious followers of Jesus are going to be heard a little differently by some of our like white secular progressive friends than you or I would be heard. And so I think there's, a, there's an opportunity right now um, for those of us who identify as white evangelicals um, to, to learn from our black brothers and sisters uh, to f- and find opportunities to, to give them a sort of space and a voice to speak for Jesus in our culture today because they're going to be heard very differently, have, have a very powerful witness in our culture today. One of the experiences I've had, I moved here 13 years ago from the UK and uh, in the UK, evangelical Christians are a very sort of small, uh, strange group from a cultural perspective. Um, and, you know, I married a guy from Oklahoma, moved o- over here nearly 13 well, I just want to make sure everybody caught that. Married a guy from Oklahoma, a cowboy from Oklahoma. I married a guy from Oklahoma State University. So an actual cowboy, <laughs> <laughs> legitimately a cowboy. And as I, as I got to know, um, hear from him, his experiences growing up, you know, in a white church in, in Oklahoma. And as I got to, un- as I've got to understand a little bit more of American history, I found myself in a position a little bit like Harry Potter at one point in in the series where he has always seen his father as a hero. So his parents died when he was a baby. And in his mind, his his father is this total hero figure. And his teacher, Severus Snape, who he hates and who hates him, is is always kind of getting at Harry about his father and telling him that his father was really kind of a jerk. And Harry just doesn't believe it at all. And then at one point in the series, Harry ends up in Snape's memories and he sees his father actually bullying Snape horribly when they were both teenagers. And he has this disorienting moment when he realizes that his, his father legitimately was a jerk. He wasn't only a jerk, he also did good things as well. But his father really was a jerk and did do many of the things that he's been accused of doing. And, and I, as a, a white evangelical, of getting my bearings here, it's occurred to me that in many ways, our forebears were jerks when it, when it comes to race. 
And that's just a, that's a sobering and a, and a sad reality. But I, I love this this other moment in in Harry Potter when he um, is is watching the the evil Dementors like literally sucking the soul out of his godfather, Sirius Black, and completely out of nowhere from across the lake, he sees this this guy casting the Patronus spell like Expecto Patronum, and this amazing Patronus charges across the lake and scares off the Dementors, and in the course of the story. Harry comes to think that that was his dad because he looks so he can't really see the guy, but it really looks like his dad. So he thinks, wow, this somehow my dad has been able to conjure this Patronus. And as the story progresses, we find it wasn't Harry's dad. It was actually Harry himself. He had to go and cast that spell and do that thing that his dad couldn't have done. And I think that the, the reason I feel hopeful for us is, even as, as a white evangelical today, is I think we have the opportunity to do what our parents and grandparents and, and great-grandparents didn't do. I think we have the opportunity to really model a consistently biblical ethic. I think we have the opportunity to pursue racial justice, love across racial and ethnic difference, at the same time as we are upholding the, uh, the, the good biblical values in all sorts of other domains. The good biblical values that we inherited from our forefathers, but then being honest about the mistakes and, yeah. and where they were, to use your terms, where they were a jerk. Yeah, yeah. And saying, we want to redo that and do that in a way that, that, that really puts the cross on display. Yeah. What would you say, Rebecca, about what does a faithful Christian witness look like in a politically polarized time mm. right now? Mm. Because um, I know you're not a citizen of the United States that I'm can not. vote, but we just came through a pretty contentious election. And it remains politically divided. What's what, what's faithful Christian witness look like now? Mm, mm. Gosh, so many, so many thoughts on that. <laughs> One is, I think we need to do what Christians should be really good at doing, and that's repenting. And I think that that's true when it comes, as we've already talked about, um, to the the treatment of, of Black Americans historically and even recently. I think it's true when it comes to the ways that that we've often failed to live up to biblical ethics and how we've treated LGBT folk. So I, th- I think we need to have a, a, a front foot of repentance, but I, I don't think it's the, it's the kind of repentance that some people go for, which is a, a repentance that actually ends up throwing the scriptures out. I think it needs to be a repentance that, that laps the scriptures up. And one of the ways in which I see this sort of playing out tangibly is in the yard signs that people uh, are sticking up around the place in my area. And I think down, down here as well, where they'll say things like, um, in this house, we believe that black lives matter, love is love, women's rights are human rights. And then there are usually sort of two or three other claims that depend on, on the specific sign. I think as Christians, we've often gone one of two ways w- with signs like that. You know, there are some folk who will look at that sign and they'll say, I, I know that it is an absolute like truth straight out of the scriptures that the lives of black people matter and that, that racial justice is super important. And I've been told that these other claims are intrinsically tied up with that idea. And so I want to take that yard sign and I want to hammer it into my own yard and embrace all of these things together. I believe in science and I want to support you right, know, right. women's rights or human rights. And- yeah, exactly. Um, and there are other folks who will look at those signs and say, okay, there are some things on that sign that I know the Bible doesn't affirm. And so I'm just going to knock it down. I'm going to throw it all out. And I don't want to hear anybody who has anything to say about any of these questions because I know like, not, none of this is, is what Christians should be saying. Yeah. You are describing people in our church. I feel like that's safe to say <laughs> that we all kind of find ourselves gravitating toward one of those two. Yeah, we're sort of pulled one way or the other. I think actually, I don't want to say like, let's get out a marker or a Sharpie. And, and instead of sort of hammering that, that sign in or knocking it over, let's, let's think, okay, 
if we take the scriptures seriously, what do Christians affirm? What do they not affirm within these? Now, to be clear, you're not suggesting they go into their neighbor's yard and edit I, I'm not suggesting that. I'm using this sort of more as, a, more as a metaphor. And what we'll find when we do that is, A, that there are um, fruitful ways in which we can actually build relationship with, with folks um, outside the church by saying, you know what? We may disagree about these things, but actually I really agree with you on this. And let's like build on that foundation and start a conversation there, which will build trust and relationship on things that we, we share. We'll find other things we need to repent of and we'll, we'll actually find as well that the very kind of moral soil in which these signs are planted is Christian soil. Because the, the idea that human beings are equally morally valuable, the idea that the historically oppressed should be cared for rather than trampled on, the idea that men and women are equal, um, the idea that, that unborn babies should matter, um, the idea of racial justice and equality and, and unity, all of these things actually or come to us. even supporting the sciences. I mean, you know. Right. All of these come to us actually out of the Bible. And, and if we take Christianity out, we're not left with a firmer secular foundation for the belief that all human beings are equally morally valuable. We're actually left with an abyss. And this is something I've learned from, from non-Christian historians who are saying, yeah, the the foundation for things that we take to be sort of self-evident moral truths whether we're christians or atheists or agnostics or whatever we are today actually turn out to be specifically christian beliefs so i think we need to we need to look at the items on the sign and we also need to have a conversation about what is the 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 moral soil in which these signs are, are grounded and recognize that it's jesus Thank you so much for listening today. Check back next Monday for the last part in the conversation between Pastor J.D. Greer and author, speaker, coach, Rebecca McLaughlin. It's going to be excellent. And while you're waiting, take a look at the One Thing podcast. It's hosted by Scott Sanders, Derek Hanna. It's part of the Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network family. It's one of my favorite phrases to say in the whole wide world, Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network family. Um, they've recently talked about refreshing staff meetings, measuring what matters, launching small groups. So just look up The One Thing on your favorite podcasting app and subscribe today. And if these 15 uh, minutes are not enough and you're just like, man, I could listen to JD talk for at least 20 to 25 minutes, uh, you should check out the Summit Life broadcast, which is a daily 25-minute program with Pastor JD Greer. Shares biblical truth in a longer format that inspires listeners to have daily encounters with Jesus. Airs on hundreds of radio stations across the country, so just spin the dial and see if you can find it. But if you don't want to do that, you can also download it as a podcast. Uh, and you can listen on the same platform that you are using right now, or you can listen at jdgreer.com. And we will see you next time on Ask Me Anything. <laughs>